Welcome to JLab, a podcast from the Civic Journalism Lab, a forum for professional, student and community journalists in the northeast of England to meet, learn and collaborate. It's supported by Newcastle University. My name's Ian Wiley, and the focus of this podcast episode is gender equality in the media. It's never going to be the right time for women to get equal pay. And the only way we're ever going to get it is by strike action. I think so far the only people who've achieved equal pay Nearly 50 years after equal pay was first enshrined in UK law, there are still too many instances where women are paid less, not just when they work flexibly or in lower paid jobs, but when they do the same job, whether that's in telecoms companies, social care, financial services, universities or broadcasting. Progress closing the gender pay gap has slowed in recent years. So we were thrilled to bring to Newcastle and the Civic Journalism Lab someone who's probably done more than anyone else in the last couple of years to highlight this discrimination. BBC has apologised for underpaying its former China editor, Carrie Gracie, and has reached an agreement about her back pay. As the BBC's China editor, Carrie Gracie clashed with the broadcaster over gender pay inequality and left her role last year after learning that she was being paid much less than her male counterparts. But she continued to fight and was eventually given an apology and back pay, which she generously donated to the Fawcett Society charity. Carrie's victory is inspiring, but it was hard won, as described in her new book, Equal, published by Virago. Let's hear from Carrie now. Thank you, Ian, and thank you all for being here. I'm really fond of Newcastle. My um, daughter studied here, she graduated in the summer, so it's nice for me to be here, it reminds me of that. Um, and it's great to see all of you today. How many of you are actually journalism students just out of interest? So quite a few. <clears throat> so in my view, um, the job of journalists, at the end of the day, when you get down to it, is to tell the stories that are both true and important. And the BBC worked this out a century ago, really, you know, if you think about Lord Reith, um, one of the key founders of the BBC, he said, you know, our job is to educate, inform and entertain. And you can't really educate and inform well without entertaining, because if you lose your audience, if your storytelling is not compelling enough, then they won't be taking on board your education or information. So, <clears throat> as Ian said, I was, you know, trotting along there in my career, somebody in my mid-50s, doing a job which I thought was important in educating, informing and entertaining about China. Um, and then I got uh, a blow from behind in the middle of 2017 on discovering that I was being paid not much more than half um, the salary of the North America editor. Now, on the face of it, that was very bewildering because when I, before I went to China, I had made equal pay one of the conditions of actually going. So it was puzzling to me, as well as obviously dismaying, to discover that we were so far adrift. And in a way, the story that then followed for more than two years to bring me here today um, is about my journey of understanding why that happened in my workplace and why I was so ignorant. You know, the thing that still amazes me is my own ignorance of this risk. So I had said, you know, you need to pay me equally or I won't go and do your job in China. Um, but beyond that, I hadn't really thought hard about the factors that play into gender discrimination in the workplace. And so this book that I have just published recently is really, um, my duty, I feel, as a journalist, to tell the stories that are true and important, this is one. It's a story that is both true and important, and it distracts me from the other true and important stories that I was telling about China. But China will not be going anywhere. It's still going to be there when I get back to thinking about it and about how you know, I might next want to tell bits of its story. Uh, which won't be going back to the China editor job at the BBC, but in some way I will no doubt go back to my China work. So coming back to the, to the context of the book and the story on equal pay, 
Um, I think it's, it's kind of survivor guilt that drove me to, to write this book. I am a survivor of a problem which afflicts hundreds of millions around the world of women, denies them uh, equal pay often throughout their working lives, and then denies them pension rights in their retirement. In this country, just bear in mind, if you are unequally paid, it's not just every month's paycheck that is going to be less. It is going to be your pension in your retirement. Women earn, at the moment, 40% less than men in pension in the UK. We have a gender pay gap. Um, it's obviously come into the fore in the last couple of years, um, <clears throat> which is nearly 10% for full-time work and nearly 20% if you include part-time work as well. And as Ian said, it's actually not closing very rapidly at all. And um, one-third of it is explained by factors like education, time in and out of the workplace, having children, this, and, you know, various factors by the Office for National Statistics, and two-thirds of it is unexplained. And you need to think hard about that unexplained element um, because unequal pay, pay discrimination, is not measured in our economy at all, um, which is a question that should be addressed to economists, statisticians, policymakers, and employers. Why is pay discrimination not being measured in our economy? Um, it's obviously easy to answer the question for employers. They're not measuring it because it would be very uncomfortable if the answer was, well, there is some in your organisation. When gender pay gaps first had to be reported two years ago in early 2018, it was quite interesting to see the answers that many employers uh, came up with for their sometimes very startling gender pay gaps. And, I mean, you'll know, I'm sure, that um, you know, for all organisations employing over 250, pp 250 people in this country, they now have to report their gender pay gaps annually. So we've had 28 re 2018 reporting and 2019 reporting. And the reasons given are, you know, we've got more men in senior positions. That's the, there are different reasons given in different workplaces, um, because obviously workplaces vary in all kinds of ways. But this is the constant. There are more men in senior positions. So one of the reasons given for, um, uh, for, for the gender pay gap is obviously the fact that men are doing more senior work in general. Women are doing less senior work possibly. This does not account for all of that huge gender pay gap difference that is unexplained that I was talking about. So I do believe that there is significant pay discrimination in our economy. I believe all women are at risk and should be vigilant to the risk because I do think there are things that women can do, that men can do and that employers can do to actually change this. It's unjust, it's unlawful and it is uneconomic. It means the misallocation of talent and the misallocation of resources. But it still goes on, and there are complex reasons why it goes on, and we'll no doubt get into some of those. But for me, it was a really striking learning journey that as a woman of, you know, in her mid-50s, age 55 to be precise, I suddenly woke up to some very important facts of life. And I felt... I felt... hard to describe exactly all the feelings I had about my own ignorance of these facts of life, but one of them was guilt, and another of them was, but why? And I think the reason is that unequal pay is not talked about enough, and it's a bit like the Me Too movement, where until that dam broke and sexual harassment in the workplace was talked about publicly, we didn't know it was happening because it was closed down by non-disclosure agreements and various people's inhibitions about the victimisation they might suffer in the workplace if they mentioned it. All kinds of reasons for being silent, but then some very brave silence breakers talked about, obviously, as you'll all know, the Harvey Weinstein story, and then that became, in a way, the iconic case around which the Me Too story coalesced. Now, the Me Too story clearly is about millions and millions and millions of women in petrol stations, in restaurants, in hotels, in banks, in whatever workplace you could mention. But obviously, it became talked about very much in terms of the Harvey Weinstein story and the Hollywood actresses involved in that story. And then there's a lot of um, 
interesting qualification of people's respect, empathy, support for those women that went on in the media. They're quite largely spun against, which is also an interesting thing to observe. And we had it in the BBC as well. We were described, you know, BBC women were described widely in the media in January and February of 2018 um, as, you know, a whinging victim cult. That kind of language was used quite extensively uh, about us. And you can see as an individual that to brand yourself in that space, you know, when you have been a proud professional person, is a difficult thing for anyone to do. But it's a crucial thing to do to tell stories in order to tell stories of unequal pay and of what then happens to you when you try to put unequal pay right. It's crucial to tell these stories. Otherwise, other women, men and employers, will not be vigilant to the risks of either being a perpetrator or a victim themselves. Enough rambling. I want to read to you from um, my prologue. So I divide the story. I tell this story. I mean, as many of you are journalists, so, you know, it's probably useful for me to mention a little bit about the way I approach the book. Um, because you will know as well as I that one of the best ways of um, communicating your journalism is through showing, not telling. You know, if you, you know, beat people around the head with what they should do, what they shouldn't do, what they should understand, the facts, you can sometimes alienate them. So an important form of storytelling and an important form of empathic journalism is to tell a story and to seek empathy from your reader, the kind of empathy which both gets them to turn the page, want to know what happens next, and onto that you can build a lot of the context and the economics and the feminism and the history and the psychology um, and the corporate culture and the law, so that by means of a forward-driving narrative, you can um, not exactly sugarcoat the, the, the hard um, information and education that you're also threading through the story, but it just makes it a more compelling weave because you've got the forward momentum of the narrative. So here's how I started my book, and you know, when you get around to reading it, and please do feel free to get it in the library rather than, rather than to buy it, but, um, but I would love you to read it. So this is my prologue, and you can tell me later what you think of it. It's called Up Over the Top. At 3.30 a.m. on the 8th of January 2018, a cab pulled up outside my home in southwest London. I was on my way to present one of the BBC's flagship radio programmes, the Today programme. The early editions of the morning newspapers were stacked on the back seat to help me prepare for the show. As I glanced at the front pages, I flinched at seeing my own face staring back at me. BBC accused of breaking law as star quits over pay. Beebs paid for women illegal, read the headlines. On the inside pages of the Times was my whistleblower letter in full. It felt strange to see it out in the world. It had lived inside my head for so long, crowding my days with self-doubt and my nights with bad dreams. Dear BBC audience, my name is Carrie Gracie and I have been a BBC journalist for three decades. With great regret, I have left my post as China editor to speak out publicly on a crisis of trust at the BBC. The BBC belongs to you, the licence fee payer. I believe you have a right to know that it is breaking equality law and resisting pressure for a fair and transparent pay structure. And so it went on. Then I want to read a little bit from chapter one because I go back. So that's January 2018, that bit I just read you. And then I go back to the beginning of the story and how we came together as a group of women to work out what on earth just happened. Um, how did we get there? We thought we were being paid equally. We were told we were being paid equally. And then we discover we're mugs. We believed what we'd been told. And, it, and then these figures, the, these figures were forced out of the BBC in July 2017. And so we discovered that what we had been told didn't quite accord with the facts. Um, and that obviously creates a lot of difficulties for any employee, 
because you have to have some degree of trust in your workplace, otherwise it's very hard to operate in your workplace. And so to start questioning and second-guessing um, things that, are, that you are being told by your bosses, it's like you don't know where it begins and where it ends. And in, from, from facing outwards, in my case, 5,000 miles away, surveillance, the occasional police detention, the operating in Chinese, making TV, making radio, writing online pieces, Chinese Communist Party Congress, North Korean nuclear crisis, you name it. Big eight-hour time difference with London. Editors back here who are obsessed with Brexit and Trump's tweets and all the rest of it. So you're dealing with all of that. And then suddenly, the ground that you thought was firm underneath you, bosses who you could you know, trust and should be able to trust, you, you start to wonder and you don't know where is the solid ground uh, under your feet. So <clears throat> a friend of mine um, was talking to me about the, um, about the pay figures on the day that they came out, and she asked me how I felt about them. So I'm just going to read you a couple of paragraphs from chapter one, which is called Get Real. How did I feel? Resistant, avoidant, numb. Four years earlier, when I'd accepted what I knew would be a tough job as China editor, I'd demanded equal pay and been promised the same salary as the North America editor. And I discovered that the North, North America editor was earning at least 50% more and perhaps closer to double. In fact, it, it was closer to double as later emerged. I had ignored the buzz of advanced speculation about the pay story. I certainly agreed with the public and the politicians that top salaries at the BBC were too high. But in my mind, this was filed under the heading, Bad Things I Can't Do Anything About. And after a long career at the BBC, I was good at not thinking about that list. It was a long-standing joke among staff that there was no crisis our bosses couldn't make worse. Anyway, so on that note, the crisis over equal pay got, went on getting worse because instead of acknowledging it, the decision made by management was to basically deny it and kind of go, la, 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 we can't hear you, computer says no. And it went on for months upon months upon months, and we were all broken down, divided and ruled in individual grievance processes. And effectively, it was a form of victim blaming in which we became the problem. Um, and we were forced in terms of informal hearings and then grievances and then appeals to endlessly repeat and endlessly go through our cases. And... Um, only for us never to be found equal at the end of these cases. And so by January, I'd worked out, you know, by seeing and mapping through the sisterhood and the kind of hive mind we developed to share information and to share support, um, I'd mapped enough in my own mind to feel, no, we're being gamed, which is the point at which I decided to take it to the public. And after that... Parliament got involved, the regulator got involved, the public obviously got involved, the media got it, the other media got involved, and the union got involved. But interestingly, even at the end of a long year of arguing about my case, and even though the skills to be the BBC's China editor when I was the only available candidate that they had for the job, given my 30 years of experience in and out of China and my Mandarin Chinese and all the rest of it, they still maintained that my work was of, um, you know, was of less value. And they never, in all of that internal process, made me equal. What they did was to keep offering me a bit more money. Is this enough? Well, how about, is, the, is this enough? It was a transactional approach when what I wanted to see was a BBC which had a gender equal, fair and transparent pay structure. Because you'll all know this, as a journalist, you set out to hold other organisations to account. And I knew that it would be completely impossible for me to ever do that job again with a clear conscience and without calling myself a hypocrite if I didn't call my own organisation to account on the same issues. So turning around and speaking truth to power inside your own organisation is not a comfortable thing to do, but it had to be done. 
at the end of the process, I still wasn't equal. And so I had to threaten, you know, to cut a, a, a long story short. This is a story with many ups and downs, some things that will make you angry, some things hopefully that will make you laugh. Um, and at the end of it, I threatened to take the BBC to Employment Tribunal. And I have to say, that was the moment that concentrated their minds. And I basically said to Tony Hall, you and me, 2020, on the half century of the Equal Pay Act in court, I will beat you when we get there. And I will beat you every day between now and then. You are making me so angry. And I will be every day between now and then mad, bad and dangerous enough to call you out on this. Now, are you going to make me equal now or aren't you? Do you want to see me in court or don't you? And he knew by this stage that I didn't want the money and that I therefore couldn't be gamed in a transactional way, that there was no point at which he could say, here's some money, go away. And he knew that I meant it, I would see him in court. And so he decided that he didn't want to be in court against me. I, I, I mean, he would have to, you know, as, as, as Ian says, the university can't be accountable for what I say, and I can't really be accountable for what the Director General of the BBC thinks. This is what I think was going through his mind, but he would have to tell you what was going through his mind more authoritatively than I can. But I think what I'm saying to you is, it is both very common for women to be underpaid, it is supremely common for women not to know when they're being underpaid. It is very uncommon for women to find out that they're being underpaid. And if they do find out that they're being underpaid, then it is very, very, very hard for them to put it right. And given that, that there is no real cure, in my, in my view, despite the fact that we're half a century since we had equal pay legislation in this country, to my mind, there is no good cure for an individual woman who finds herself a victim of it because she will suffer in my experience very my personal experience and my experience of hearing from many many thousands of other women because when my case went public people did start writing to me saying your story is my story it differs in no particular from my story I was a victim just like you I thought I would sort it out with a reasoned conversation with my bosses. I thought I liked my bosses. I thought they shared my values. And then I was put through a humiliating, undignified, and maddening um, internal complaints process. And basically, I had nowhere else to go. I could either go to court or I could leave. Those were, my, those were my options. And so, so many people wrote and told me this story, and it left me feeling that the law is unfit for purpose, that it's gamed against women, with employers holding the data, all the, all the top lawyers, and the experience, and women have to risk their financial security, their careers, and their sanity because it's going to take you a year of internal process followed by probably two years of external trudging to tribunal to get the thing sorted. And if you have financial support from your union or from your household insurer, the employer knows that just as you get to tribunal, they will offer a settlement. The union or the insurer will say, you we will withdraw financial support unless you take that settlement. The case will not get into the public court, and therefore the public is none the wiser, and the rest of that person's workforce is none the wiser. The individual woman will be closed down with a non-disclosure agreement or some other form of, of, of gagging clause. And so the world goes on, and the discrimination goes on. And that is really why I wrote the book. I came out early because of my privilege, because when I said that to the director of the general of the BBC, he knew that I was speaking for BBC values, and it would be hard, it would go hard for him, this is what I think anyway, it would go hard for him in tribunal um, to be up against me. And um, therefore, he chose to back down at that point. But most women don't have that luxury. They don't have that privilege. They have to make a very, very tough choice. 
And that makes me sad. That's why I gave the money away to the Fawcett Society. Nearly £400,000 I came out with at the end. I gave every penny of it away because I wanted individual women on low pay to have access to legal advice um, on these issues because I found it extremely lonely and challenging. And I had a great team of other women with me. I had a great pro, pro bono lawyer through my grievance and my appeal. I had a union and uh, had you know, parliamentarians who were interested in the case. And even with all of that support, I at times felt incredibly lonely and challenged and didn't want to go on. And it really pains me to think of all the women who have to make a very difficult choice about whether to stand up for the value of their work, a matter which is not about just about money, but about self-respect. It's about self-respect and not being belittled. I was told I was in development. That was how the BBC ended up, you know, after looking through what possible, you know, retrofit justification can we make, can we make for paying Carrie so much less than we're paying the men. I know we'll say that she's in growth and development. Well, at 55, that is unacceptable, unacceptable. It is belittling. And if you internalise that form of disrespect, it is, it is psychologically damaging to the woman in question. And it pains me that women are faced with that choice of are they going to accept that or are they going to fight on in these terribly lonely and very hard to win David and Goliath battles. Hence giving the money away and hence also writing this book because I want you all to go away and protect yourself. I want all the young women here to really think hard about your value when you go into the workplace and to make sure that you're really keeping an eye on whether you're being paid equally. You need to start talking about money. You need to explain to the, your male peers why it's important for you to talk about money, why it's important to share pay details. And your male peers need to understand the structural reasons, not just the unconscious gender bias, but the structural reasons related to the motherhood penalty, you know, different caring duties, the, the ways in which the workplace and the market is discounts women's work. And so if people understand that more, men and employers, hopefully they too, or the ones with ethics, will start to get themselves into the right position in relation to this issue so that we can take not just women with us, but men with us and bosses too. So I've uh, included at the end of this book um, advice for employers and advice for men because I think employers obviously have the most power in the situation to fix this. And men have more power than women because they are the powerful people still, you know, at this point in the early 21st century. Men are more powerful in more workplaces. And so if they stand in the way, they block history. And if they move with us, they're advancing history. And men have to decide where they want to be in this fight. They can't just sit on the sidelines and pretend this is something between the woman and her boss. It's not. It's about everybody. I think we should stop now, talk for long enough. We want to hear from Karen, hear, hear from all of you. Thank you. Karen Ross, Professor of Gender and Media at Newcastle University, kicked off our Q&A time with Carrie before opening up the floor to questions from the audience. Um, so I have actually read the book. It kind of makes painful reading in gen generally, Carrie. Um, a few things that, that just occurred to me, kind of just a... One of the really obvious things for anyone, I mean, hopefully you will, you will get to read the book. What, what I found um, just kind of slightly unnerving is that it's actually a really personal story. You know, it's, it's not, you know, you, you, I think it says, you know, a story of women, men and money. And it, it is about that. But it's also very much your story. And I think that the, the way in which you, you know, journalists do tell stories, but this is a really personal story. So... Can you just say something about why you decided that it wasn't just about that, that two-year period in your life, but actually to flesh it out a little bit more? You actually talk about you and your family and health issues. So do you think that those, those, those elements, those aspects of your life are, are, are required in order to us to understand your story? I think so. I mean, I think that the... So for people who don't know... Um, much about my story. So just a couple of biographical details. I lost my mother when I was 17. She died of ovarian cancer. My, uh, I married a Chinese rock drummer. 
Um, I am one of five children, and I was the second eldest. And I think, um, you know, my parents kind of taught me to be a lieutenant for fairness among my, you know, among my uh, among the kids. So it's like there have to be fair rules. Um, it's you know, in a, in a large family, you know, you're going to either have fair rules or you're going to have survival of the fittest. And so that was relevant. And um, my daughter had leukemia when she was small. And I had breast cancer. I was, well, my family have a genetic mutation, which was why my mother had died, and I had the same genetic mutation. And I suffered um, divorce as well. So I have had some personal difficulties. And I think they all, they all played into how I dealt with the issue and how I felt about the issue. I get impatient with people who are in positions of power who don't try to resolve problems and people who don't live by the values that they are spouting. Um, so I felt profoundly offended by the way that some of our management dealt with the issue because I felt that they were dividing, distracting, you know, defeating us and draining us rather than solving the problem. And my mum died because the people who were trying to save her life hadn't got the cure to her problem sorted in time. But my daughter survived her childhood cancer at the age of two because the people trying to save her life had solved some problems in time. And my life was saved, and I'm only here because some people managed to solve some key problems in time. So I cannot abide people who are, who are there to solve problems but fail to solve them and, in, and actually block solutions to them. So that sense of impatience, this is, no, you do not get to waste my life. That's how I felt about those people. They were wasting my life. And my life's precious to me. Um, and, and the way that they, I mean, you'll only, <laughs> you don't really understand this when you, when you read the book and you see all the ways in which they wasted our time. Um, you know, the notes that were returned as gibberish and that bore no relation to the actual hearing conversations, all that kind of thing. You know, four weeks to actually correct some notes. I mean, this is the BBC. We do audio recordings for a living, you know, and I wasn't allowed to make an audio recording of my hearings. And, you know, and notes, it's like no BBC reporter would have survived the notes that came back from my um, grievance hearing or my appeal hearing. And so as a BBC journalist, I was profoundly offended and betrayed, quite apart from anything else about pay, I was betrayed by the poor professional standards of people who, you know, just, just did not live, live up to the values of the BBC. And the China element of my story is relevant as well, because, you know, there are, you know if, you, if you work in China year in, year out, decade in, decade out, as I have done a lot of, then you spend a lot of time explaining to Chinese government and Communist Party officials why freedom of expression matters, why freedom of the press matters, why you're not going to back down on any given story just because they're threatening you with something. No, these are my professional values and I'm not going to back down just because you're going to make it uncomfortable for me. And so having done that on the front line, I used to kind of talk about myself as some little hobbit who gambled around in the Shire in, you know, W1A in London, but then who trekked off like Frodo Baggins 5,000 miles to Mordor to do battle under the Eye of Sauron, I, you know, also known as Xi Jinping. So I used to... But then I realised that actually these large top-down organisations, you know, mine here in the BBC and that one there in the Chinese Communist Party, had more in common than I'd ever imagined or that I'd ever, you know, I'd ever thought. And that, too, was relevant... And also, it, it felt very precious. The BBC values are immensely precious to me. Um, and because partly of that China experience, I, see, I have seen so many people suffering in circumstances where they don't have freedom of expression or, or, or a free press. I really know what that looks like. And therefore, you know, the values of the BBC are vital to me. And I was prepared to take on the fight partly because of that, I think. Um, that's a good answer. <laughs> One of the things that you make really clear, and I think it's, it's something which is incredibly important to understand, is the difference between 
the, the gender pay gap and equal pay for work of equal value, because it's the latter which is your claim, because the latter is illegal. So I'm just, and it kind of ties in with the word that you keep using, which is values, because it, it is actually about values. But you, you make a really interesting point um, in the book. You say some, somewhere on the, the day, either the day or the day after the, the BBC were forced to kind of publish their um, salary scales, that you talked to a manager who'd said, rather than a load of women kind of queuing up outside his door complaining, he actually had a load of men complaining that they weren't getting paid the same as the other men. So given how, given that, given that you're also saying, you know what, men are in power, men have actually got to step up to the plate. But, in, you know, we're talking about a zero-sum game. So in order for women to have fairness, not necessarily more, but fairness, men have got to have less. And I'm just wondering, given what you've just said and given a lot of what you talk about in the book, how, how are we going to convince or encourage men to, to do that, to actually see that it's in their interests fairness prevails? Yeah, well, so there isn't one simple answer. Um, there are many, many different um, nuances and dimensions to this problem. I think that's the first thing to say. When people say, oh, it's a, this problem, you know, it's a gender pay gap and it's down to this, blah, 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 blah. They're not wrong, but they're only giving a partial answer. And I want to acknowledge right now that, you know, there's only time for a partial answer at any given moment. This is a, you know, the embedded, baked-in pay discrimination in our economy is, has been there for centuries. I mean, women are second-generation immigrants to the workplace. This is going to be a long um, and difficult journey to get it right. And it involves all kinds of issues, the unconscious gender bias issues, the structural issues that I mentioned, pay secrecy issues, changes to the law to make it more fit for purpose, and much and good journalism, frankly, to draw attention to the issue. So all kinds of things are necessary. And I think for men, I mean, I quote a couple of lines from Upton Sinclair, who says, you know, back in the, in the 30s, well, it's hard to get a man to acknowledge something or to see something if his paycheck depends upon him not seeing it. So I think acknowledging that it is difficult for people to see what involves them in discomfort is important. As a degree of empathy and sympathy for people's difficulty in acknowledging hard facts. Um, but firmness. I mean, we have to be firm and not let men who want to deny the underlying structural factors and the, you know, the unconscious gender bias factors and so on. People have to not be allowed to crawl through those holes or crawl under those fences to get away from the issue. There is an issue here, and all large organisations have got no excuse because they've got HR departments. Those HR departments should have read the literature. They know much better than I do that unconscious gender bias is a fact, and it's a fact in recruitment, progression and promotion, and it's a fact in pay. And if they're not vigilant to it, then why not? And obviously, there are a lot of women in HR and a lot of men, generally, I'm generalising again, um, a lot of men who are doing the managerial roles here and women who are doing the HR roles here it tends to be, it can be a problem um, as these roles are paid more and are taking more, taking more decisions. So leadership needs to come from those men and they just have to be, they just have to get on board and be called out. I mean, I'm not sure what, and I don't necessarily mean called out in an aggressive, assertive way, but, I mean, I'm still working at the BBC, and that's because having fought a war against some of my management over this, I now think it's important to win the peace as well, which involves talking to people, being cooperative, going into a meeting, explaining to them, and not letting them get away. And that, you know, because if you run away from the problem, often... Women, when they have an equal pay issue, they w will feel they have to leave because it becomes too intolerable to them to stay. And so then they'll be outside, kind of lobbing grenades into the organisation from outside, and everybody inside will go, that person is an enemy. They're a vexatious ex-employee with an axe to grind, and we're not going to listen to what they say because we don't have to. 
the just vexatious, gone mad woman. And I was determined that I wasn't going to cede that territory to anybody in BBC management who wanted to say that about me. I mean, I'm sure there are plenty of people in BBC management who do say that about me anyway. But they actually still have to see me in the corridor, they have to see me in the lift, they have to see me on their screens, and they have to see me in meetings. And that means they can never forget or marginalise my argument. Well, one more question before I kind of answer, open it up to the floor. And I think that one of the kind of issues that kind of comes across um, really clearly in the book and in, in something in, in terms of what you've just said, in terms of people, how people reacted to your resignation, I mean, whether, were you surprised, did anything surprise you in terms of how your colleagues or the public, you know, other journalists, BBC management reacted to you? either on, you know, in social media, to your face, by emails. Were there things where you thought, whoa, I wasn't expecting that? Yeah, it's been a lot. I mean, there were a lot of surprising things. There were some pleasant surprises and some less pleasant ones. So good surprises were my colleagues, by and large, and the public, by and large, because I had feared that, you know, my colleagues would be angry with me for washing our dirty linen in public. And I had feared that the public would misunderstand me and think I was a greedy princess who just wanted more money. Um, so I was pleasantly surprised that very swiftly, um, when I published that open letter, people got it and believed that I meant what I said about why I'd written it and what it was for and why I'd resigned, the China Post and so on. And so my colleagues were pretty much behind me and the public were pretty much behind me, and Parliament was very supportive, where they had a hearing. Um, I was unpleasantly surprised by some star men. I mean, some of you may, may remember the Humphreys Sopel kind of, you know, hot mic moment, and I was not impressed with that, as you can imagine, um, because I had taken risks. I'd taken, you know, whistleblowing is a very risky business. You risk, there are, there are, obvious risks. I could have been sacked. I was, you know, in breach of contract for talking about my employer without permission. I was in breach of BBC editorial guidelines. Same. You're not allowed to talk about the BBC without permission. I was, um, and I took, you know, those risks of being misunderstood and reviled in the media. And as I say, some of the media did revile us and me. Um, so, and, and, you know, it sounded like the kind of things that were said a century ago about the suffragettes, and it's just exactly the same language. That was kind of, that was just kind of eye-opening, that you could, that the same kind of vitriol, when somebody hasn't got a good argument to use against you, they just turn to abuse, personal abuse, because they've got nothing else to do. I was surprised and angered by this spin against me, which must have come from somewhere in the BBC, I don't know where. Um, it was unworthy of the BBC. I was surprised that, uh, and annoyed that what was a really important argument about gender equality in the workplace at the beginning of the week around my letter and the coverage of that, which was serious and thoughtful, then the media coverage became about this kind of pantomime, you know, conversation between Humphreys and Sopel. So it's like we ended up with a kind of absurd pantomime at the end of the week, which, oh my word, we're back to talking about two blokes. Um, you know, when we started with a serious, thoughtful argument, it was like my thoughtful argument got lost in all this kind of chaos. And I was, I guess I'm surprised as well, in a more uh, nuanced way, I was surprised by how many people were surprised by my actions. Because I kind of felt anyone who should, anyone who knew me, and anyone who knew what BBC values are supposed to be, wouldn't be at all surprised by what I did. But it was interesting how many people were surprised. Chinese foreign ministry were very surprised because obviously you don't go up against the machine in China. That's a very unusual, actually, symptom of clinical insanity thing to, you know, is, is often regarded in, in China. I shouldn't joke about that. I mean, in the old days, they did actually put people into mental asylums for, for, for dissent in some, in, at some moments in, uh, in, in, in communist history in China. Um, not so much anymore, but still, it's a, very, it, it's a very risky thing to do. And so the Chinese Foreign Ministry, when I went back after the parliamentary hearing in, 
I went back the first week of February 2018 and I was packing up my suitcases and I went to say goodbye to the Foreign Ministry, who are the minders of the Foreign Press Corps in China. And they had been a big thorn in my side and made my life very difficult. And I had been a big thorn in their side and made their lives very difficult. And, and yet, you know, in that kind of smiley's people world where people who live in the same bubble, kind of even if they're on, in opposing camps, they kind of understand each other, they, they were really interested in China. And I was really interested in China. So even though we were often on opposite sides of a fence or a, or a wall, we always talked a lot. And at this point where I was leaving, they gave me lunch and they said, what on earth happened there? What did you do that for? What was that about? And I, um, I said, well, you know, it was you people who taught me the muscle of defiance. I worked on that muscle here, as you know. And then I turned around and I used that muscle of defiance back against the BBC, and they laughed because they knew it was true. Um, and Sarah Sanza, the editor of the Today programme, I think she was surprised, and when she got back, she'd been away when the whole thing had happened, in the middle of the week she got back, and she said, what, what was that all about? What, you know, she wanted to understand what were my real motives were, just in case they were different from the ones stated. And I said, I'd been watching you know, the Queen fairly, fairly recently, and I don't know if you know that episode where that guy, Lord Altrincham, gets punched... Um, and abused because he's dared to suggest that the Queen needs to be brought into the 20th century and that her kind of, you know, her interface with her public is less than perfect. And, you know, he's accused of being someone with a very tiny mind who challenges, you know, the venerable institution of royalty, blah, blah, blah. But in the end, the, you know, the Queen follows all the advice that he, that, he, that he offers. So I said to Sarah Sands, the editor of the Today programme, I'm just, you know, the Lord Altrincham of the BBC trying to bring it into the 21st century, as in, can we just get gender equality now, please? Um, so, yeah, that's kind of a list of some of the things that surprised me and some of the things that didn't surprise me, more pleasantly or unpleasantly. Obviously, your um, matter was a private story which appealed to a lot of the public because it's a very recognisable issue. Um, but I'm just thinking in terms of um, recently with the BBC, uh, the Naga Munchetti racist Trump thing. Um, I was just wondering what your views on um, being impartial as a journalist are. You know, how, to what extent can you really be that impartial? Because obviously everyone's got something that kind of affects them or, you know, everyone's got a history, everyone's got things in their life. So I was just wondering... Yeah. Um, so when, when, when that Naga ruling, so you're a bit, probably most of you are familiar with this, Naga Manchetti is a breakfast presenter. She uh, was invited by her co-presenter, Dan Walker, to comment on, after an interview that they'd done back in July, on Trump's comments about the go-back comments um, about the, um, um, the women of colour in Congress. Anyway... So then it was subject to a complaint and the BBC Editorial Complaints Unit investigated it and then they suddenly announced that they were going to partially uphold this complaint against Naga. So I had a strong view. Um, and my view was that there are different ways of interpreting partiality and impartiality. And it is difficult. And the editorial policy at the BBC in these turbulent times that we live in have not got an easy job. However, I thought that they got it wrong there. Um, I thought, um, personally, I think that you can either interpret um, impartiality narrowly, or you can interpret it slightly more broadly, due impartiality in the context in which it's uttered, i.e. it's a three-hour breakfast on the sofa um, conversation, it's not a news bulletin, context is important, etc., etc. I also think the context of who you're holding a complaint against, who you're upholding that complaint against is important. And I feel strongly that our complaints, our policy unit, must be very careful to treat their employees um, the same. So it comes back for me to an issue of equality of treatment, because I feel that... Um, you know, there have been, and, and we saw it, and in fact, I mentioned it in the book, at the time of my equal pay um, letter, there was an I, hashtag I stand with Carrie that got a lot of my colleagues into trouble. And some of them were taken off air um, because they were seen to have breached impartiality or to be at risk of breaching impartiality in interviews on the subject. And um, I felt it was applied 
unequally to men and women. Um, and if you're going to apply impartiality rules narrowly, and I'm not saying the BBC shouldn't, I think it's an interesting conversation how broadly or narrowly you want to apply them, um, that's fine. You decide, but you have to signal very clearly to everybody what, how narrowly or otherwise we're going to apply them. And then you have to apply it impartially. You do not start applying your impartiality rules narrowly to a woman of colour, in my view. You know, if you want to signal that you're now going to apply the rules narrowly, please start with an alpha white male, is my view. So I said that on Twitter when the Nagara broke, and obviously that created some difficulties with, for me. Um, and not everybody in management was happy with me. Um, and I also said that a lot of BBC journalists were uneasy about what was happening, because I thought it was important. You know, the, one of the problems at the BBC, I think, is we have a management who are sometimes a little bit slow. They get into a paralysed matrix, and then, you know, one bit can't, can't, you know, impact the other bit. And sometimes they just mess it up by being slow and paralysed. And I thought they needed to move faster and they needed to move differently. And I said so publicly. Um, but these things are difficult. And they obviously did, in the end, cha change and overturn that ruling. Um, and, you know, it left a lot of people confused. But I think it was good that we had the debate because the debate needed to be had. And basically, the debate needed to be had about racism and about whether the BBC was in any way going to identify racist language or call it out. And that has been clarified at the end of that. Hi, um, I'm not a journalist, I'm a lecturer in sociology and I came today because I've been through this. And I'm 58 now and when I was 34, I took an equal pay case. And oh, well done you. And I if think about what you're saying and the amounts of money that you might be talking about and think about the amount of money that I was talking about and my salary would have probably been two and a half pence in comparison but here's the here's the point that's making me think I listen to what you just said and I honestly think that people who haven't been through this will have no idea of what it's like to have the solid ground under your feet taken away and so that struck me very powerfully I went through it and it took two years and it wore me down and I did as you did, resigned from that post. As I've gone forward, I've gone into teaching and research. I talk to young women about this all the time. I teach fantastic young women every year of my life. And here's the fine line that I find myself treading with them. The young women going on into careers, which is telling them how it is and not squashing their aspirations. I was really glad to hear you say that you've got advice for young women about talk about money, name it, actually bring it out and so on. But I honestly don't think that anybody really knows what it's like to have that ground taken from under your feet. No, I, I agree with that. Um, and I think it's, I mean, I'm certainly not going to criticise anyone who finds it hard to understand or imagine because I wouldn't have understood or imagined. And, you know, I, you occasionally, before my issues, I would, you know, I've been in the BBC for 30 years, I would hear whispers of this or that issue going on. And quite often, you know, I would take on board or internalise the kind of management, because we have authority bias, right? We want to believe the people who are in positions of authority because it's actually pretty scary to start thinking that they're untrustworthy and to always be second-guessing everything all the time. You don't want to live in a world of paranoia where you're second-guessing everything all the time. So when I think back, I would think I was also as two-dimensional and unable to imagine what it would be like to take on an employer given the, the rug being pulled from under you. Um, and it, in a way, it comes back to a question that you asked, Karen, why did you write it in such a kind of raw human way? And the answer to that is because you have to engage empathy um, in order to really get through to people, I think. And the only way of engaging empathy is to tell the story honestly and properly vulnerably, um, which is, it makes you feel incredibly vulnerable. And, um, and I think, I've been 
you know, this is why I talk a bit about survival guilt. Some women, I mean, you, as you say, had to go through two years of it. I only had to go through one year, and I didn't have to go to tribunal. And I have met and had letters from and had emails from so many people who've had it much longer and much worse and much more lonely than mine. And mine was already a scarring experience. And I don't like to think of all the scarring that's happened to other people. And that's why I feel it's important to warn you know, next generation coming out to be vigilant, um, men, women, and employers. But I want to say also, I, I mean, I hope it, although I know there are bits of this book that are painful, I try to write it in a way that it's like a story where you, I hope you want to know what happens next, and you kind of, there are occasional, I try to put some jokes in, <laughs> you know, to kind of keep it from being too grindingly attritional, because that is another thing, if it's too painful, it, um, you know, people will just think, oh, I can't bear it. Hi there. Um, you talked a lot about the kind of values of the BBC and the systematic, uh, how you as journalists, professional journalists within the BBC understand those values. But I think us as student journalists or general public, we have our own understanding of what the BBC values are. So I think, um, were you surprised, uh, kind of, one of those values is kind of objectivity or um, less kind of vested interest from editorial kind of ideologies like you would have in newspapers or so, or so on. So were you a bit surprised when some of your fellow colleagues, journalists, reacted the way they did when this story came out? Would, did you expect that? Would you, were you not thinking maybe uh, this was be more of like a, a unified kind of coming together moment for you as journalists at the BBC? Hmm. I think... Um... It's hard to tell. I mean, you know, the BBC is a large organisation. It's got a lot of people who are pulled in a lot of different directions. Um, but I, I think that BBC journalists do, on the whole... I mean, everyone has got better days and worse days, right? We're not all perfect every day. But I think, on the whole, BBC journalists do have a, a set of values um, which, are, which they need to uphold and which they do believe in upholding. Now, not everyone is perfect at upholding those values every day. I'm not going to say that I am either. Um, but I think it's important. It's like, you know, getting plaque on your teeth. Greed and fear. That's why I say, you know, greed and fear are kind of like, I don't know, they're just kind of, you know, they coat our behaviour and they muddle our, our responses. And we're all subject to, we're all susceptible as humans to greed and fear. And they can get in the way of seeing the compass clearly. And there is a BBC compass. And sometimes in this, you know, as I say, it's a turbulent time. Politics is very tribal, as we all know. I mean, one of my great difficulties as BBC China editor was getting them to pay any attention to China because there was so much else going on, you know, in terms of Trump tweets and Brexit and so on. So everyone is stretched and everyone has greed and fear pulling them in different directions. But... You know, below that, when they think hard, the BBC has great values. It just needs to remember occasionally what they are. I'm a, a final year journalism student. Um, I was just wondering what your own experience of breaking into the journalism industry was um, as a woman, and if over the, th the last three decades, if you've seen an increase or change in the representation of yeah. um, female journalists in the media. Yeah, that's interesting you raise that question because, I mean, my experience of getting into um, journalism was I had, um, uh, you know, I had been in China as a teacher, I'd done a degree in philosophy, politics and economics, and I'd worked in a restaurant. Um, those were my prior experiences to, um, to joining the BBC as a trainee in 87. Then I would say that I had a fairly... Um, E fairly equal experience probably in the late 80s and then I think probably the point at which it became difficult for women um, myself and other women was as we climbed up a bit um, in in foreign news and in news gathering at the BBC it was a quite male environment particularly for um, senior foreign correspondents and I don't know how many of you are aware of a journalist called Miriam O'Reilly. She took a case against the BBC. I think she's a very brave woman. And she took a case. She got trashed by, you know, in, in the media and, you know, spin from whoever. I'm not going to name them. 
um, you know, against her, but she was a very brave person who refused to take the money that was offered to her because she wanted to see the case in court, you know, ageism, sex discrimination, and victimization. And she won on two counts. And after her case, that was 2011, after her case, the BBC was forced to think hard about putting older women on screen, both in journalism roles and other roles, and it made a huge difference. So actually, I regard myself and the rest of my tier of, uh, you know, the, when I was doing China Editor, I was the first... So they'd had an economics editor who was a woman, but she had left. And so there were no on-air editors when I became China editor. And then after me, they had Laura Coombsberg's politics editor, Katja Adler as Europe editor, uh, Bramwyn Jeffries, and a few others. Um, so they, I think, were responding out of that experience of Miriam's case. So I think out of brave individuals does come does come change. Um, I think Miriam did an incredible... She really took one for the team there. Um, and I think it's better now, but as you can see, you know, from the pay issues that then happened, it was like, well, you can, you can be seen, but you, you can't be heard. Um, you know, there was a slightly shut up little woman element about the equal pay debate when it first began. So, you know, some steps forward, some steps back. So there's kind of two issues here, really. There's obviously the present day equal pay issue, which I think everybody would commend you for taking the steps to, to fight. But then there's also a future equal pay issue. And I guess my question is, how do you think we get to a point where actually this isn't something that women are having to threaten tribunals in order to win? Um, and is that simply about addressing the structure and getting more, men, more women into senior management positions? Is it about getting men to step forward and take their share of parental responsibility? Like, where, where and how do you see that happening? And how optimistic are you that we'll get to that point? Yeah, that's a, an interesting question. I mean, it's quite a broad question. And um, I think the, the honest answer is, I have my view, which is just my view. And it's really shocking that there isn't more research on all of this, right? So we don't know exactly what are the key things that make the crucial differences in all of these areas because there's not enough work on it. Um, and so I was really shocked when I set about writing this book because I wanted to, you know, like any of these workplace dispute cases, it's like Jarndyce versus Jarndyce in the, you know, the, um, the Dickens Bleak House story. It's just like you've got files upon files full of the most crushingly boring detail about your case. And you don't want to think about it anymore. And what you want to do is read all the great work that's been done by other people on equal pay, you know, the ways it relates to all the factors that you've talked about. And you just want to go, OK, I'll have all that great research and it's all being, you know, done, the work's been done for me. I'll just plop it down in the middle of my story. Job done. And when I set about writing this book, it kind of hadn't, that work hadn't really been done for me. And I was a bit shocked because I had to kind of go and do a lot of it for myself. And that's a long way of answering your question, which is to say, my view is just my view, but I have formed a view that it is all of the above and the things that you mention. We need women to be more vigilant and really to think hard about what value they can bring into the workplace and then really work hard to make sure that your value is being acknowledged um, you don't have to aggressively assert it, but you have to effectively assert your value um, because you cannot be confident that your workplace will accurately measure your value. Um, and men have to do this awareness thing and then they have to help because once they become aware that there are structural reasons why it's happening, then if they're fair-minded people and if they care about fairness in the world around them, then they have to step in and help. And that means they have to share their pay, de pay details. They have to understand why women need to know their pay details. They have to share their pay details. And then they can actually get up off their bottoms and go into pay hearings with women so that when the boss says to the woman, well, sorry, we're not going to pay you the same as the man because he's got more skills than you or he's got more experience than you or you're in development or you know, da, 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 da. Um, the man is sitting beside you saying, I don't think so. Think you'll find she's doing the same job as me. Think you'll find her experience is as valuable as mine. And so if you've got your male peer, your comparator in equal pay language, sitting alongside you and showing solidarity and defending your position and closing down the belittling, crushing narrative of why the woman is worthless, 
um, then you're going to move from square 90 on Snakes and Ladders board to square, square 9 to square 90 really fast. So men have to step up, I think. And, and employers have to step up. And what is going to make that happen is also an interesting question. And there you do come back to effective law so that there is an effective recourse for women when, because the cost has to be significant enough to actually change employer behaviour, and it currently isn't. It's just been gamed cynically against women, I think. Um, but that's just my view. Um, I just wanted to go back to that idea of um, vigilance that you were talking about and just kind of, I guess, just point out that when we're talking about equal pay and sort of equal rights, it becomes so much harder when you start putting in sort of narratives of intersectionality sort of the difficulties and how much more difficult it is and how much more emotional labor a person of a female of color or a woman yeah. would have to then put on to, uh, to yeah. add into these kind of situations and just to say that you know as white women we should also know our privilege within this yeah. sort of struggle and make sure that we're making space for that as well and I guess just so yeah, I think that's really important. I mean, I, I think we, you know, within the sisterhood at the BBC, so the, so the group, the BBC women group that we established after the initial pay shock of 2017 is now about 500 people strong. And it's people of all kinds of, because it's not just, so intersectionality on ethnicity, race, religion, disability, sexual orientation, but also socioeconomic class. I mean, the BBC is, you know, a class-ridden organisation. Um, so I'm state school educated, but I went to Oxford and that matters, you know, within a BBC context. So I have that privilege, plus I'm white. And so those, those are meaningful privileges in that context. And it is really important, I agree with you. And I've become sensitised by my experience of, you know, of this struggle. It's made me more sensitive, in fact, to other areas where, um, you know, where people suffer from discrimination and the vulnerability, the double vulnerability that comes, you're already a victim of that discrimination and then you have to fight against the discrimination. And it is why people who have privilege have to come into bat because they, they haven't suffered it. So they need to be ready to understand it and then ready to use the energy and the resources that come from their privilege, which was why I was determined to get straight in and speak up from Naga when that happened to her, because it's like, oh, 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 oh no, I'm a, I'm a white person of privilege, and now the men did not come into bat for the women on gender. I am not going to be a white person who pretends there's not an issue here. This is an issue you're calling out a woman of colour before you've ever called out any alpha white men who, frankly, I won't name them, but some of them should have been called out. So those intersectional issues, I think, yeah, totally agree with you. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. You've been listening to JLab, a podcast brought to you by the Civic Journalism Lab in association with Newcastle University. I'm Ian Wiley. Thanks for listening.